0: Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. indeed. And so what you've just heard kind of concludes the story that we have been dwelling in now for these last months. And I don't just mean these last months of Lent, but frankly since Advent of last December when we began hearing the story in Mark's gospel of Jesus uh, appearing, his ministry, his life, his suffering and death. And now in these eight short verses of the 16th chapter of Mark's gospel, we find ourselves now at this place, right here at the empty tomb. And I'll admit to you and all this morning that of all four gospel accounts that we have in the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, I kind of like Mark's the best. I know that's kind of like saying you have a favorite child, but be, be that as it may, um, why is that? It's probably because I tend to operate out of the right side of my brain more than the left um, Logic tends to win out over emotion for me, and thus I happen to think that Mark's stark and rather unadorned account of the Easter story is probably the most accurate, and I like that. There's no earthquakes here, right? There's no temple curtain being torn in two. There's no passed out Roman guards, no folded burial linens, there's no breathless enthusiasm and angelic declarations all there is here is an empty tomb and what mark describes as a young man dressed in white telling the women embalmers that he's not here that he's in fact left gone to galilee ahead of them the whole brief episode ends with these women running off in terror Uh, did you hear that they were afraid they said nothing to anyone which I think is probably the most believable part of the whole story. It's terrifying to be faced with a reality that 30 seconds ago you couldn't have even begun to imagine. That is terrifying. It's the consensus of biblical scholarship that Marx was probably the first gospel written because it's the shortest and because it's the tendency of folks to want to embellish a good story rather than take away from it. You know, to try to expound, to clarify, amplify, explain, etc. It's natural to read Mark's gospel, particularly that 16th chapter from which we just read, and wonder what comes next. I mean, is that all? They went away and they said nothing to anyone because they were afraid? Is that what's the rest of the story? Hmm. More to the point, it might cause a person to wonder how Mark's Jesus' story His telling of the passion, suffering, and death of Jesus could launch what would become a worldwide movement, you know, the largest religious movement in the world with such a paltry reporting of the Easter story. But you see, that's just it. It's the terrifying newness of it. Based on everything that had already come before in the story, a willingness to give everything away so that we might live. Mm, that's what does it. Some of you in the room might be familiar uh, with Krista Tippett. Probably not many. but Krista Tippett uh, is a journalist who uh, used to be a very frequent contributor to National Public Radio. She had a program and still does a podcast now called On Being. On Being with Krista Tippett. And She frequently explores issues of faith and its many expressions, not just Christian faith, but all types of expressions of faith throughout the world. And this past February, Krista had on a fascinating guest, and they had a great conversation. His name was Rabbi Ariel Berger, a Jewish rabbi who was the author of a book called Witness, Lessons from Ellie Wiesel's Classroom. Do you remember who Ellie Wiesel is? He was a survivor of the Holocaust and he spent years writing and then lecturing all around the world on the effects of the Holocaust, not only on the Jewish people but on humanity as a whole. And the conversation between Tippett and Berger was centered around exploring the ways in which people of faith might be instrumental in moving us all forward from where we find ourselves right now as people on the face of the earth. What do religious people and traditions have to offer and teach as we do this work ahead of repairing, remaking our societies, renewing our life together? What do we have to offer? That was her question. And towards the end of this very far-ranging discussion, which I would encourage you to go look up on the web and give a listen to if you can, Krista Tippett, Ariel Berger, On Being, you'll find it. Rabbi Berger told this story. Of a lesson that he learned from his college age son. He said, My son in college went on this trip to Israel. It was a semester long program where they spent time in Israel and then they went to Poland. And they traveled Poland, he said, for about 10 days. And on this program, he made a good friend. His name was Mason. And when they got to Poland, they were touring around. At you know, the centers of Jewish religious life in Poland, and they visited the concentration camps as well. And on the third or fourth day of their time in Poland, Mason disappeared for the day with one of the counselors. And he wouldn't tell anybody where he went, where he was going. When he got back, he wouldn't tell anybody where he'd been. But finally, he said, he told my son Mason, because they were friends or because my uh, my son nudged him enough to tell where Mason had been. And so he said, this is what Mason said. He said, my grandparents were survivors. They were married three weeks before the deportation to Auschwitz. He said, my grandfather would go every night to the fence, separating the men from the women in the camp, to see my grandmother, to bring her a crust of bread or an extra potato, Or if he didn't have anything just to see her every night. Except when my mother finally got moved from that part of the camp to a rabbit farm on the outskirts of Auschwitz. The Nazis were running a rabbit farm in which they were using the rabbits to conduct experiments trying to find a cure for typhus. Okay? And that rabbit farm was run by a Polish man. who noticed pretty early on that the rabbits were getting better quality food, better care and attention, than the Jewish prisoners. And so he started to sneak in food for the Jewish slave laborers and the inmates. And then, Mason told his son, my grandmother cut her arm on a piece of barbed wire and the cut became infected, which wouldn't have been any big deal if you could get antibiotics, but they weren't giving antibiotics to Jews at Auschwitz. So what did this Polish uh, manager do of the rabbit farm? Well, he cut open his arm, and he placed the wound on the wound of my grandmother, and he became infected. And he went to the Nazis, and he said, I, I run this rabbit farm for you, and... I need antibiotics. If I don't, um, I might die. And all the progress we've made so far, I mean, it'll be a mess. I I need medicine. So the Nazis gave him medicine, which he then shared with my grandmother, and he saved her life. So Mason said to my son, he said, where was I when I left, when I disappeared? I went to see that Polish man because he's still alive, and he lives on the outskirts of Warsaw. And I went to him to say thank you, to thank him for my life. Thank you for my life. And then Rabbi Berger went on. He said, so my son told me this story, and it raises a lot of questions. Hmm? What does it take to be the kind of person who will share someone else's wound?" in spite of all the pressure to see them as less valuable than a rabbit? What does it take to push against all of that pressure and do the right thing with courage and moral clarity and to see another person as a person when everything around you is telling you not to do that? Then Rabbi Berger said, really, for me, that's the motivating question right now. How can we turn all of the treasures of our human traditions, our religious traditions, literature, practice, to become better at that work? Because to me, he said, that's the most important thing. It's the root of everything that challenges all the questions we're facing. I happen to think he's right. I do. And so I'll ask you the question this morning. How can we utilize the treasure that is Easter to become better at this thing of living together? The very Son of God takes the wounds of the world into Himself so that we might live. And in sharing our wounds, even to His own death, rises to give life to all. To all. In Mark's telling of the story, First witnesses to that empty tomb. They fled in fear, saying nothing to anyone. And I'm becoming more and more convinced that Mark leaves it hanging there for a reason. Obviously, we know that they must have eventually told someone or none of us would be sitting here this morning, right? But to leave the written story right there with fear and wonder and silence, it just might be Mark's way of saying that now... The story is ours to finish. Indeed, I'll use best word from her kid's message, indeed, what does it take to be the kind of person who takes on the wound of another person in spite of all the pressure to see them as less than? What does it take to push against all that kind of pressure and do the right thing with courage and moral clarity? To see another person as a person And everything around you is telling you not to do that. For us, I think it begins with the one who did it for us. In spite of the cross we put him on. See, we understand that that kind of sacrifice brings resurrection with it. And perhaps even courage now. Courage. To take on the wounds of our neighbors. Wounds suffered because of the color of their skin or the nature of their gender, or the slant of their politics, or the place of their birth, or any of the other myriad ways that we have found to divide and discriminate and discount one another. In this work, in being the rest of the story, the unwritten promise of Easter now takes on form and substance as we all rise together. You know, it could just be. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Amen.